Sex. Well, that's got your attention, hasn't it? Hello and welcome to James Whale's Manifesto. In this series of podcasts, I like to give something back, to do my bit for Britain by getting people talking, helping them to get things off their chests. The burning issues that aren't polite enough for the dinner table or the office coffee break. Now, it's often called the oldest profession in the world, but there's a new dilemma in the debate about prostitution. A new film, Scarlet Road, recently had its European premiere at the Sheffield Documentary Festival, and it's caused a bit of a stir, to say the least, with its portrayal of a sex worker in Australia who specialises in disabled clients. But it doesn't just happen down under. Catherine Stevens is a UK-based member of the International Union of Sex Workers, and many of her clients are disabled. She says selling sex to people with disabilities is not as rare as many people think, but society's prejudices about prostitution and disability make it a double taboo. But is the tide likely to turn any time soon? Scotland is now considering following Sweden in criminalising the purchase of sexual services. And in 2009, landmark legislation in England and Wales made it illegal to buy sex from anyone who's been forced into prostitution. Even in the infamous adult playground of Amsterdam, the authorities are now backtracking on red-light district liberalism to clean up sex work which they say has been a beacon for organised crime since legalisation a decade ago. Julie Bindle is a journalist, self-confessed radical feminist, who believes buying sex always exploits women and should be made an offence in every circumstance. But what about the severely disabled person for whom time with a sex worker is one of very few physical pleasures? Should they be tarred with the same brush as the curb crawler who treats sex as just another convenience, like going to a drive-thru or ordering a takeaway? What do you think? Now, Catherine and Julie join me on the programme. And, uh, Catherine, first of all, let me ask uh, you, you've been a sex worker now for 10 years. For 11 years. 11 years. Uh, what first made you want to take this up? Um, it was some things that I thought I'd be good at because I'm very comfortable with my body and I'm not judgmental about sex. And I was lucky enough to meet some people already working in the industry, started working with them, which is actually quite a common way of, of beginning to work in the industry. started working with them and then when they retired, set up on my own. And of course, because of the law, when I was working with them, that was completely illegal. I was working in a brothel, as a brothel is any premises mm -hmm. where there's more than one person selling sex. Do you think if this sort of uh, business was to be legalised in this country, uh, it would cause more problems or less? Well, what we're campaigning for, what the International Union of Sex Workers is campaigning for, is decriminalisation of consensual adult sexual behaviour. So that means that people would have the freedom to work together and they'd have the, free they'd have the freedom to call the police without fear of arrest, without fear of prosecution for working together. So that would immediately start tackling issues around violence. One of the um, things that enables offenders to go unreported is the fact that people are scared of the police. They're scared to report crimes against us to the police. 
You see, looking through the statistics for a sex worker, I'm very concerned, Catherine, about your safety, to be quite honest, because the statistics that I, I have in front of me here say, for, for instance, up to 70% of women in prostitution spent time in care, 45% report sexual abuse, 85% report physical abuse within their families, and up to 95% of women in prostitution are, are having problems with drugs. One of the things that the organisation I work with campaigns for is policy that's based on evidence, and that means looking at the evidence in its entirety rather than cherry-picking individual statistics. So, for example, the data that you're quoting is largely inapplicable to the indoor sex industry, which is about 70 to 90% of the industry in Britain. And also, if you compare it to the experience of violence in other areas of work, 85% um, of nurses in A&E have experienced violence, bullying or harassment at work in the last year. So, as I say, it's in a context where we cannot call the police if we're at risk of arrest. And uh, for women on street, the definition of soliciting is persi persistent soliciting is what they can get arrested for. And the definition of persistent is more than uh, twice in every three months, by which definition I go to the gym persistently. Um, and that means that these really vulnerable women can have contact with the police four times a year without risk of arrest. But it seems that the tide is beginning to turn against prostitution. A few years ago, if I'd spoken about this, I would have had hundreds of phone calls uh, coming in saying, James, we think it should be legalised. Now, the likelihood is that the majority of people think it shouldn't. Do you think they're telling the truth or, or do you think they're actually just hiding behind what they feel uh, public opinion is? Well, actually, in terms of public attitudes, Again, the evidence that's available is, is not that people are in favour of decriminalisation. So uh, we've seen, um, in the last couple of years, we've seen phone-ins to IT, ITV's This Morning programme. We've uh, the BBC Big Questions, um, and they both um, had 70% uh, of callers in favour of decriminalisation or acceptance of prostitution. So actually, um, public attitudes are not as negative as you describe. And, um, and again, in terms of it, it depends on how you phrase the question. If you say, do you want effective legislation? Do you want policy based on evidence? I think most people would have the common sense to say, yes, policies that solve problems are based in evidence and in reality. All right, a global study of prostitution found that nine out of ten women in prostitution would like to exit the job if they could. Does that apply to you, Catherine? If there was a better job available for the same sort of money, would you want to do it? That's a much-quoted survey that's been um, attacked by a, by a large number of academics over the years as having unclear methodology. So, for example, it depends on, again, how you phrase the question, where you find your survey sample. So if you're looking at people who are working in a way that's very difficult, if you're looking at people who are, if you're finding um, survey participants who have just been arrested, who are being forced by the police to answer your questions, then they will have a really, they will not be having a positive experience. I'd contrast that with a, um, a piece of research by a woman called Suzanne Jenkins that has a very um, uh, large sample size. She talked to 500 people across um, the UK, Canada and the States, 300 of whom are female, and she's explicitly looking at issues of power, exploitation and control between sex workers and clients. And there she was finding overwhelmingly that people felt uh, they were treated fairly by their clients, 
that they had no intentions of, of leaving prostitution. Um, and uh, so when people were asked about good things about sex work, Mm-hmm. They talked about money because it is a relatively well-paid occupation. They talked about flexibility of working hours. They talked about independence. They talked about meeting people. All these things were kind of like with uh, between um, 68 and 95 percent of people saying were good things about working in prostitution. All right. Um, we're going to come back and talk about your selling sex to disabled people in a moment. Right. Uh, but for the moment, Catherine Stevens, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Julie Bindle, who uh, is a freelance journalist and an activist. You describe yourself, Julie, as a radical feminist, not the fun kind. <laughs> give, me, give me your first thoughts before we chat. Give me your first thoughts about what Catherine said. Well, Catherine rightly so pointed out that the statistics that you quoted back to her about the levels of drug abuse and certain other forms of violence mainly apply to women working on street. And of course, she's right. Although research that I've just been involved in alongside um, London South Bank University on women uh, who are seeking to exit the sex industry show a very different picture to the one that she has outlined for women working off street. There are very similar levels of some of the types of problems that the women on street face. And this comes directly from the women themselves who tell us that their background histories, you know, are often filled with the kind of abuses, neglect, um, and care situations that on-street women also report. And then, you know, Catherine talks about the Jenkins study um, of women who say largely that they feel in control, that they earn lots of money, that they're happy. But this is not a representative sample. Jenkins spoke to and interviewed women who are, like Catherine, in a very unrepresentative area of the sex industry. In other words, the higher class, working themselves, escort type uh, of job, where there is, of course, less likely to be the pimping and coercion uh, and trafficking that you have lower down the ladder, if you like. But you believe, I'm told, anyway, reading notes on you, Julie, uh, you believe that buying sex always exploits women. Absolutely, it is sexually exploitative. So that Catherine is being exploited whatever she thinks? The problem with selling sex, the problem with buying sex, and incidentally, I'm absolutely for the decriminalisation of any person, man, woman, child or transgender person who is selling sex. The problem with the transaction is that it is in absolute contradiction with equality between women and men. The vast majority of women selling sex um, are exploited in some way, coerced in some way, come from a background of vulnerability. And the vast majority um, of people in the sex industry are women. So, yes, I think the transaction itself harms all All women. If you want to decriminalise it, do you also want to try and wipe it out altogether? In an ideal world, we'd all want to wipe out altogether poverty in Africa, poverty in the UK, child sexual abuse, rape. We would not say we just want to control it or minimise the numbers. We would say that we want to eradicate it. And yes, I see it as inherently abusive, despite the fact that some women absolutely choose of their own free will to sell sex independently. But I think that the message that we get from the likes of Catherine Stevens, who is not representative of the majority in the industry, is that it is unproblematic, that we have a lovely utopia where lots of money is made, pimping is invisible, 
pimping is irrelevant. And when she talks about decriminalisation, what she means, because prostitution isn't illegal, what she means is decriminalising pimping of women. All right, let's go back to Catherine. Um, Catherine, uh, you're making prostitution sound far too glamorous. Well, I think it's interesting that when I have conversations with people like Julie, what they attack is not the content of what I say in terms of the data that I'm providing generally. They talk often about the fact that I'm unrepresentative, and if you've got to resort to ad hominem attacks, that shows that you don't have the data available to actually refute what somebody's saying. In terms of issues around what Julia refers to as pimping, the legislation concerned is in the Sex Offences Act 2003, which talks about controlling for gain. And controlling for gain covers almost every way of working with or for a third party, and it explicitly includes people working absolutely of their own free will. So the law completely fails to target exploitation and abuse. And in the same way, the legal definition of a brothel is as any premises where there is more than one person selling sex, even if they're never there at the same time. Do you use the services of a pimp? Um, I work independently most of the time. I've worked in brothels. I've worked for escort agencies. I would not describe those situations as pimping. I'd describe those situations as business arrangements because to confuse um, fair and safe working environments with those that are exploitative, that those that are harmful, means that it, there, is no, there is no way for the law to target harmful behaviour. There are laws in place that can target exploitation, coercion, kidnapping, violence, but those laws are not um, the, the laws around people working together, brothel keeping and controlling the game, absolutely fail to target abuse. How many days a week do you work? I have my phone on seven days a week and I'll see clients sort of, yeah, most days. And how many clients most days? It really varies. One of the things about selling sex is, like many kinds of freelance work, your income really varies. And certainly when I was working in Brussels in Soho and in Shepherd's Market, which both areas of London very well known for prostitution, um, it would really vary the number of clients that you would see. And certainly if there was a, if there was a football match on, uh, the whole kind of mythology around major sporting events, uh, driving demand for selling sex, we all knew if there was a football match on, that was the shift that you didn't want to pull because you'd be sitting there uh, kind of listening to the phone not ringing and watching daytime TV. Do you not think that you're putting yourself in danger, that you don't know who's coming through the door and you've no idea if somebody who has a screw loose is going to come in uh, and, and pull a large knife out and attack you? But that's the case for all sorts of occupations. Lone working is dangerous and in... In non-criminal environments, there are all sorts of systems that people have in place to protect people who are working in isolation. And sex workers have that. So, for example, many people work. They have a friend who knows where they are. They have a, they have a safety system in place. And one of the things that's happened recently is there's been the launch of the National Ugly Mugs uh, reporting system that means that people can report crimes against them, not to the police, because that's dangerous, because we fear arrest, but they can report crimes against us to the UK Network of Sex Work Project, which passes on information about alleged assailants and also gives that information to the police 
in a way that is safe for us so the police can try and investigate. I I mentioned this new movie earlier, Scarlet Road, which uh, is all about a a sex worker in Australia who specialises in disabled clients. Now, some people listening to this podcast will think this is really over the top and something we shouldn't be talking about. But there are a lot of disabled people who, if it wasn't for someone like you, Catherine, wouldn't be able to have any kind of sex life at all. Is that right? Sadly, I think that's the case. There are many literal and metaphorical barriers put in the way of disabled people in terms of their interaction with people as a whole. And again, if you want to look at issues around kind of hate crime and violence, sadly, many people, particularly with visible disabilities, are the targets of violence. Um, I'm lucky in that I have um, a large number of disabled clients that I see on the basis that they pay what they can afford because I know from my friendships with people with disabilities that being disabled is really expensive. If you have to get a cab everywhere, if you have to constantly be paying for uh, kind of modifications to your house or you're employing uh, kind of uh, assistance to do activities that you're not capable of, it's really expensive to be disabled. Um, and Scarlet Road was a great film because it really explored in a very nuanced way a very invisible side of the sex industry. We're hoping to arrange screenings in London because it does really... Uh, and you see some of Rachel's clients on screen talking about what the experience means to her. So um, I'd really like to see that more acknowledged. Some people will, will actually say, how on earth could you bring yourself to do something like this? Well, I think... In a way, that shows the kind of repulsion and disgust with which disabled people are often viewed. And there are people I've seen where it has been challenging. So, for example, there are a couple of clients I see who have conditions that affect how much they can swallow. Uh, So they, they can't swallow their own saliva necessarily. And... That is, extreme, that is unattractive. That is not a particularly pleasant uh, sort of uh, situation to be around. However, it's much more difficult to be in that body uh, than to be somebody who is giving it pleasure, who is giving that person sensual touch for a short period of time, for an hour, two hours, three hours. And it's a real privilege to be part of giving, some, giving somebody physical pleasure when that may be something that's very difficult for them to hmm. get. Julie, what do you think about this? I think that the whole nonsense that's being peddled about the sex industry being there as almost a benign social service for these poor disabled men because they have a human right to have sex. Not just is men. One of the best number of PR jobs is one of the best PR jobs that this multi-billion-dollar-led industry um, has actually come up with in 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 decades. So what, hang on, what you're saying then is that you think Catherine is using this as an excuse for what she does. I don't think Catherine needs to excuse what she does at all. And I also don't think that disabled people, men and women, necessarily find it difficult to get a partner any more than able-bodied people. I think it's absolute disabled-hating nonsense to suggest that if you have a physical or otherwise disability, that you have to go out and pay for sex in order to get sexual So you think you think that disabled people are buying sex in the same way as able-bodied people are buying sex? Absolutely no difference. No difference whatsoever. There are many people who are able-bodied who cannot meet a sexual partner for various reasons, and they don't actually use this reason in order to justify paying for sex. I think that's a simplistic misrepresentation of the diversity of experience, both of people in the sex industry and people with disabilities, that's being promoted in the service of an ideology. As I say, we want to see policies made on evidence and in reality, 
rather than ideology, emotion, or dramatic individual cases. And Julie's driven by ideology. She takes the view that prostitution is a form of violence against women, and her views and opinions follow from that. There is no person in this world who you could have on this program, whether they're experienced in some way or not, who doesn't have a view on prostitution. And the academic studies that Catherine likes, that she quotes favourably, all are driven by ideology. And the and same for you, Julie, as well. Methodology. You pick out the, the statistics that you like and that uh, actually support your views. That's what we, we all, all do, isn't it? We all do that. We all have a view based on the statistics, based on the evidence that we think is the most honest and most representative. And I'm very open, unlike some of Catherine's colleagues in academia, I'm very open about my views of prostitution being in direct conflict with equality between women and men, which is, of course, what I hold close to my heart. So, yes, I'm very mm. open about that. Would you actually criminalise disabled people for buying sex? I would criminalise people across the board for paying for sex in the same way as I would criminalise people across the board for smoking in public, for smacking their children or for driving without a seatbelt. Catherine, what do you think of this? I think it's really sad that individuals and organisations who describe themselves as feminists have forsaken the principle that a woman's consent to sex is her own to give. If we were to criminalise paying for sex, it would create a class of women whose consent to sex is seen as less valid in law. And that's a really vital principle. A woman's consent to sex is her own to give. But Again, what about those women who, who are, are not actually giving their own uh, consent, those people who've been sold into slavery, those people who have been uh, uh, trafficked, those people who have drug problems, those people who have psychological problems, who, who really aren't in a position to make these decisions for themselves? Those people, like everyone in the sex industry, deserve full human rights and the full protection of the law. And as I've said, the law absolutely fails to target people in those situations. For example, legislation on trafficking does not focus on fear, force or fraud. It talks about knowledge and intent. The Sexual Offences Act 2003 criminalises uh, transportation of people knowing that they're going to be selling sex. So if somebody were to give me a lift to work in a brothel, that would be trafficking in UK law. So I absolutely fails to target people who are who are forcing others All right. in situations they don't want to be in. Julie, what would you do if you were a legislator now uh, to, in your view, improve things? I would decriminalise the selling of sex for everyone involved, men, women, children, transgender people. I would stop criminalising those who are the most vulnerable and I would certainly make it easier, better and safer for any person working in the sex industry to report a crime. I would introduce the Nordic model, which is to criminalise those who buy or attempt to buy sex, and I would not put them in the stocks or send them to death row on Florida. I would simply make it a fine um, and a warning and a caution, and hopefully with public awareness raising linked into that, we would end up with a society where men didn't see the buying of women's bodies to be a birthright for them and where women are free of sexual exploitation. If, if in your heart of hearts, when you're sitting there on your own reflecting on this, Julie, you know that this is something that has gone on ever since, uh, ever since man and women w were put on this planet. You know it's mm. not going to be curtailed. You know it's not going to be stopped. So surely organising it and making it safer for the people who work within it is the best 
way to go forward. So would you say that about poverty or about child abuse or about rape? That it's would I say it was better to get rid of them all? And get, of course I would, yes. And we live, in a so, pla- we live in a world where there is more than, I think it's, what, four times the amount of food for everybody on the planet, yet most people are, are starving. We live in a world that is completely messed up for one reason or another. Absolutely. But this, this is one situation where you could surely control it better by legislation rather than outlawing it. Well, James, they've tried in the Netherlands. That's been an absolute disaster. Brussels were legalised in 2000. It's been a long enough uh, pilot project. It's failed. Everybody, all the politicians have accepted it's failed in some states in Australia where it's been legalised. Again, ditto, more trafficked women have been found in legal brothels than in illegal brothels. The sex industries have expanded in legal regimes. In New Zealand, where it's been decriminalised, that means that pimping's been decriminalised and the women themselves report that their jobs are no safer and, and it's no easier to report to the police. And that comes from the government's own report five years after the experiment was, uh, right. was launched. Uh, Julie, let's ask Catherine. So, Catherine, really, you need somebody to look after you uh, because, uh, quite frankly, this is no fit and proper business for a woman to be in. Um, yes, I think there is a lot of that kind of nanny state kind of viewpoint in a lot of the conversations around prostitution. And as I say, we're looking to see policy that is made on the full range of evidence that is based in reality. And that gives people the full protection of the law and equal say that their consent counts equally and they have full human rights. And finally, uh, going back to what Julie said, of course, where prostitution has been legalised, it hasn't really worked, has it? And so the countries who legalise it have actually looked at this and gone back to uh, criminalising it again. Well, we're campaigning for decriminalisation, which has happened in a few states of Australia and in New Zealand. And a lot of the evidence that is coming from there is really positive. Legalisation doesn't tend to work. It creates a two-tier system. So Nevada has a legalised system that's very restrictive. Um, Amsterdam also has a legalised system that excludes many of the people who are most vulnerable. So the evidence that we have available shows that of all the systems available, uh, decriminalisation is what works best. Is that an absolute silver bullet for for eradicating all problems of... um, exploitation and stigmatisation in the sex industry? No. In the same way, we decriminalised male homosexuality um, in 1967, and there are still issues around, uh, around stigmatisation, around, uh, around discrimination against violence against people who are LGBT. So, but decriminalisation is an essential first step. Decriminalisation and, as I say, making policy based on evidence and in reality. All right, Catherine, um, you're not comparing uh, gay people to prostitutes, are you? I mean, you're not, you, you wouldn't be doing that. Um, I'm saying that we can see from decriminalising men who have sex with men that decriminalisation of a practice does not eradicate all the problems that that group of people face. Yeah, but we're, t- we're talking about people who, who are in love with each other, not doing it for money, aren't we? We're talking about decriminalising uh, behaviour between two people who, who uh, are doing it because, well, they fancy each other or they love each other rather yes. than doing it for money. So it's a slightly different situation. It is different, and also there are also parallels. In the same way, there are parallels between lots of aspects of prostitution. For example, issues around loan working, issues around stigmatised behaviour, issues around um, kind of health kind of potential health problems and so on. So there are all sorts of parallels. And absolutely, prostitution is its where sex and money and gender and power come together. And all those things uh, are kind of issues about which people have very strong feelings. So it is different. And also, that doesn't mean we can't look at other situations and say, well, this is what seemed to work here.
Julie, maybe you and Catherine need to get your heads together to sort these problems out because obviously you both uh, seem to to uh, feel very passionately and very strongly about this, and both of you uh, seem to have uh, more than enough statistics at your fingertips. Uh, surely there should be some kind of uh, uh, coming together of the both of you rather than allowing the politicians who probably don't know as much as either of you. I absolutely agree, and what we're totally agreed on, and this goes across the board, is that we care about the women and we wish to decriminalise the women. We wish to decriminalise anyone who works in the sex industry as a person involved directly in prostitution. But we do not agree, of course, on decriminalising those who are pimping, exploiting and profiteering. And hopefully we can work on the former and put aside the latter because it's so important to decriminalise those who are vulnerable to arrest and who can't, as Catherine said earlier, who can't safely often report sexual violence to the police. That has to stop. So, thanks to my guests Julie Bindle and Catherine Stevens. You've been listening to James Whale's Manifesto, produced by Wise Buddha. If you've enjoyed having your feathers ruffled a little, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and I'll keep the controversy coming. What do you reckon? Should brothels be made more accessible or should they be banned altogether? Does it come down to entitlement or exploitation? Why don't you tweet me at the James Whale and let me know where you stand. Whatever you're doing, listen out for the next podcast and tweet me at the James Whale.